And good evening, everyone, or good morning, or good afternoon, depending upon where you are on this very confused planet Earth tonight, or tomorrow morning. I mean, things are really, really kind of like the other side of midnight. I mean, 24-7 now, if, just in case you've been hiding under a rock or coming back from Mars or some other distant place. We're going to have an extraordinary show this morning. Um, I have an old friend who's going to be our primary guest with some surprises dropping in in the third hour. My, uh, my guest is Richard Grossinger, who, among other things, is an anthropologist. He is a um, publisher, and he just got a new, how should I say, imprint. And I said that to a friend of mine the other day, and she said, what's an imprint? And I said, well, it's about uh, four foot long. No, anyway, we will have him discuss what an imprint is when we bring Richard on. Before we do that, let me remind everyone that this morning at the crack of dawn, about 8.30 a.m. in New York time, I was on the Salem Radio Network, um, including WABC in New York. I wish I could remember their old jingle. Um, And I was discussing to a uh, discussing to discussing with an old friend of mine. Uh, John Katzmatitis um, in a forum called Cats Roundtable with a whole bunch of people as part of his show there in the morning every weekend across the country. Um, among other things, the surreptitious announcement by NASA a couple of months ago that they found life on Mars. If you missed an earlier show a couple of weeks ago with Chandra, Chandra Wickrama Singh, we discussed this at length and we're going to be discussing it at length In a week, next Saturday, we're bringing the team together. We're going to discuss that. We're going to discuss uh, Trump wanting to mine the moon, the Russians accusing him of wanting to own the solar system, which I think is an intriguing indication of what's maybe really going on. And we're going to get into some of this, particularly in terms of Mars, with my guest tonight, uh, Dr. Grossinger. But before we get to any of that... um, I want to go through a couple of news items in, in case you don't uh, know how we do this. If you're new to the show, it's really simple. You go to the other side of midnight.com. That's our URL. That's our homepage. Click on tonight's banner, which says bottoming out the universe. What is bottoming out the universe? We're going to find out when we talk to Richard momentarily, click on that. That will take you to his guest page and right under that banner, you will see, some items called um, uh, fast links. What you want to do is to click on those for my items where it says Richard. Click on uh, fast links for Hoagland, and that will take you right down to where you want to be, which is my items this morning include some very intriguing things we're going to be talking about with Richard later on. Number one. A new statistic reveals why America's COVID-19 numbers have kind of flattened out, but at a very high plateau. Remember, when I had this conversation with Chandra, there are two models for this virus spreading around the world. One is it started in China, in Wuhan, and then people in Wuhan who had it got on airplanes. They left China. They traveled to other parts of the world, including the United States, including Europe, uh, Iran, Italy, Spain, and points south, southern hemisphere as well. And this virus has been spreading, this incredibly contagious virus. And the more we look at it, the weirder this thing gets. I mean, 
this is really not your average virus. It has extraordinary properties. It almost seems to be changing as we look. And now I can hear people say, mutation, mutation. No, this started out weird and is continuing to be weird. Um, anyway, that model is, that's called the contact model, where you basically spreads from person to person to person. It's a respiratory disease. It's spread by, you know, talking because you emit little tiny droplets as you're speaking. And if you're closer than, you know, several feet, six feet has been named. I think it should be further because there's studies now that show that uh, when you sneeze, you know, you can really propel those particles 20 feet away. So, uh, you know, distancing from people is the old-fashioned way to halt epidemics, pandemics, and staying home is a very good idea if you can. We know a lot of people can't, um, particularly in the black and brown community. Do you know that the incidence of death in those communities is extraordinarily higher than their percentage in the population? And this is generally uh, thought of as a... um, uh, professional problem in that they are in the social industries, the uh, service industries. So they are meeting a lot of people and the odds are going to go up. If you meet a lot of people that it only takes one slip and you get enough virus to, to infect you. So that's one of the you know, the primary model. The model that Chandra and I were discussing is based on his research, which goes back decades. Now he's correlated previous epidemics on the earth, pandemics going all the way back to ancient Egypt. And he believes, he and his colleagues believe there in England, uh, including people that are no longer with us, like Sir Fred Hoyle, that there are actually viruses and bacteria in interplanetary space, in particular being emitted from comets. The Chandra's model is that comets are natural. They're huge bergy bits. But they have life in them, and that life is, you know, undergoing replication and uh, biology. And when they scatter their dust to the to the um, to the to space from solar radiation and the sublimation of the ices in the vacuum, um, those particles hover in the tail of comets. And if we cross the tail of a comet, and that material falls to Earth eventually it creates these semi-periodic pandemics which have plagued Earth, sorry about that, for literally millennia. What Chandra and a colleague in China have been you know, attempting to investigate, and it's hard because China is not totally forthcoming with data, is the idea that this coronavirus, this novel new coronavirus, literally fell from the skies as part of an event over China sometime in the fall. And the fallout was spread by stratospheric winds in a band between about 30 north and 50 north around the planet, around the world, over the next couple of months. The first item, this statistic, which reveals that something like 20% of the tested um, Americans so far and we need far more tests. Test is a huge you know, buzzword right now because we don't have anywhere near enough to actually outline the three-dimensional aspects of this pandemic. But of the testing that's been done, an astonishing 20% of those tested turn out to have the virus. 
And I know there's people out there who say, oh, the tests aren't reliable and all that. Well, again, based on other epidemics and other epidemiology, the PCR test is very accurate. You know, you're up in the 80%, 90%. Nothing is 100%. Remember Hoagland's first law. All science is approximate. And we're finding out as the officials and the authorities are changing their ideas and their models on this thing almost daily that everyone seems to be groping in the dark. This really is a novel coronavirus, and it has all kinds of hidden aspects. For instance, remember I was talking last night that the uh, coverage now, the testing coverage of all 4,800 give or take crew members of the Theodore Roosevelt the major aircraft carrier currently docked in Guam, where they initially found, you know, a few coronavirus cases. They've now found over 800, and it's climbing. And what's really disturbing is that over 60% of the those tested positive are showing no symptoms, even on repeated tests, which means they can be carriers, they can be virus shedders, which is the technical term, And unless you do a test, you're not going to know. If we extrapolate that to the general population, um, I mean, the numbers are really, really staggeringly large. And again, there's always this overpresent, you know, echo that a certain percentage of the people who get this, particularly in, in, um, uh, you know, populations that are more, shall we say, susceptible, um, they will die. And what's really uncertain now is what is that percentage? Um, It's looking, based on the statistics at item number one and from the Rosebelt measurements, that it could be as high as half a percent. So you're going to say, okay, so half a percent of the people who get it are going to die. Big yawn. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm stunned by this cavalier attitude to death. But that number, half a percent, is five times the annual flu rate at the maximum, uh, you know, virology of flu, which is like a tenth of a percent. So numbers matter. And even if it's only, quote, 5%, I'm sorry, you know, half a percent in terms of the, uh, you know, number of people that are infected versus the number of people who are going to die, if you infect enough people in a large enough population, that number can result in a staggering real death count. And that's what all of this fanaticism and panic and everything that's been done around the planet is seeking to head off. Because, again, this is a very squishy science. There's so many unknowns still. I saw the other day that patients are developing abnormal blood clots and weird sores on the bottoms of their feet. I mean, what is going on with this? And the biggest question, of course, is... Was this just a natural infall as Chandra models, or did this come from, you know, a wet, you know, market there in Wuhan, which is the mainstream model? And then the kind of upgraded mainstream model is, did it escape from the level four bio lab there in Wuhan investigating, you know, biological warfare? Or is it something really we've never seen before? Okay. What I've been intrigued with, apart from keeping the death count as low as we can humanly do, which is stay at home, distance, 
Don't let it spread person to person. If, in fact, it's been falling from the skies, it means that a lot of people that we don't think have it, in fact, have had it, have gotten over it. And now the question is, do they have antibodies? Are we developing what's called herd immunity? I have some evidence, and I've talked with Ron Gerbron uh, about this at some length. Uh, he thinks he may have had it last fall. I have another friend who I was mentioning last night who was in the hospital for pneumonia right at the new year, and I'm beginning to wonder now whether she had it and recovered. And I guess the only way we're going to find out is if there is an antibody test which can be applied to these people. If that is correlated with with their symptoms, it means this has been floating around the world for a lot longer than the mainstream currently seems to think. In fact, I've seen some evidence now it could go back as far as last September, which introduces all kinds of other questions we don't have time uh, or the data to answer tonight. But one of the aspects that I've been very intrigued with is that those people who are who, who, who catch this and who have recovered so they can tell us their stories, it seems to be that they're having wild and unusual dreams. And again, I was talking with someone this afternoon and they said, oh, that's just a natural part of, you know, having a fever. No, this is something different. This is something more extreme. This is, again, an aspect of this particular infection, which seems very unusual. Now, the article there, number two, uh, it says pandemic is giving people wild, unusual dreams. Here's why. Forget their explanation for why. I don't think they have a clue as to why. Um, you know, they're talking about social distancing is making people more, um, shall we say, uh, stimulus neutral, meaning they don't have as much diversion in their life. So they're kind of replaying old tapes. That's one model. I'm wondering, and we're going to talk about this uh, in the third hour when we bring uh, George Lambert on. I'm wondering if, let's hit it on the head, there could be a very intriguing metaphysical connection. And when we bring George on, I'm going to talk about some of that. In fact, that's going to be items two, three uh, tonight that we're going to get into because one of the people, one of the main people that everybody knows on television, Chris Cuomo on CNN, he has been reporting some very bizarre mental and psychological aspects including after about two weeks, he said the, I think it was on Monday that he's decided his entire profession is pointless and he simply wants to quit because he's tired of basically, and I'm paraphrasing, putting political liars on the air. So does this virus in certain people open them up to, shall we say, a higher level of awareness and perception? Is that one of the reasons why some establishments are feverishly trying to keep more people from getting it because this would, in fact, create the context of a consciousness revolution at a horrible price, of course. But, I mean, there's all kinds of things we don't know. Remember Hoagland's first law. All science is approximate. And a lot of people are seeing this in action, kind of like in slow motion. And it's very disturbing because most people, I think, grew up with the idea when a scientist says something that's kind of like God talking. You know, it's the truth. No, it's an approximation of the truth. And when we talk with Richard, we're going to get into the um, 
the idea of epistemology and, you know, how do we know, what we know, and all that. Item number four and five are celestial. Um, I'm going to talk tonight with Richard about Mars and about we, what we discussed with Chandra a couple of weeks ago. This discovery under the umbrella of the news coverage 24-7 of the virus, this major, interesting, extraordinarily intriguing story coming out of NASA really has not gotten any airtime at all, which is that NASA has found another Martian mystery. And we're going to talk about that with Richard and see what he thinks, uh, whether he comes to the same conclusion that Dr. Wick Ramasinghe did a couple weeks ago. Finally, um, remember I mentioned a few days ago that we may have a very spectacular comet called Atlas that was going to kind of round the sun at the end of May? Well, a few days ago, Atlas fell apart. Very far from the sun, like at the orbit of Mars, where the heating should be minimal and the gravitational forces should be non-existent, this comet that everyone who's kind of in the comet business was looking at to be very spectacular come the next month or so, it just kind of broke into pieces and the pieces are, have been fading like it physically broke apart. And so it is not going to perform to any level of what the pre- previous projections were. However, a couple of three days ago, another comet suddenly appeared uh, in one of NASA's spacecraft. I think the SOHO uh, camera system that takes ultraviolet images in the Lyman Alpha line of hydrogen because comets emit water and then the water is split apart by sunlight, ultraviolet, and the hydrogen then glows in what's called a resonance transition with what's called Lyman Alpha, which is a brilliant line in the ultraviolet, which if you could see in the ultraviolet, comets would appear as brilliant, much brighter than they appear to the uh, naked eye or in a telescope uh, without this kind of other spectral filtering. Well, Comet Swan, which is named after the folks that discovered it at another institution, which I forget at the moment, uh, Comet Swan is going to kind of mimic uh, its turn around the sun at perihelion on the 27th of May, as opposed to the 31st for Comet Atlas. And at the rate it is brightening, it could become a third magnitude object, meaning it would be visible in a dark sky with the naked eye um, as it comes closest to Earth and is going to come about 20 million miles closer than Comet Atlas was and that will be in the next couple of weeks something like 50 million miles away and in the northern hemisphere it has a very inclined retrograde orbit um, of 111 degrees. Now some of you who've been following our work will know that you know 111 degrees is basically 111, which is a mathematical convolution of 19.5. So is Swan another one of these tinkered with objects? And again, we're going to talk to uh, Richard about Oumuamua and Comet Borisov, because I'm not sure he's been following them closely enough to understand why they are really intriguing in this context. Anyway, with all that out of the way, let me... um, introduce my guest. Dr. Richard Grossinger is a PhD in anthropology from the University of Michigan, the former publisher of North Atlantic Books. He is the author of several books in his own right, including Dark Pool of Light, Reality and Consciousness, 
the night sky, soul and cosmos, and the latest, bottoming out the universe. And he lives in Portland, and he also lives in Berkeley, which is north of where Cynthia is, actually not slightly north by a few miles. And you can read all the rest on the other side of midnight. So let me bring Richard back on, because he was in uh, this show in the first year, and then he went to write a book, and we haven't talked very much since. Richard Grossinger, welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight. Well, thank you, Richard. Um, it's good to reconnect with you. Um, well, yeah, I, there's, a lot to, there's a lot of momentum behind what you just said. So <laughs> even think? to kind of get, get myself into the conversation, it's going to take a little bit of work. Um, Richard and I have been, um, we haven't been talking recently, but we talked back in the 80s a lot. And we established certain terms, uh, I don't know what you call it, sort of uh, terms of, on one level, language, on another level, energy. Um, we, I, I guess what I'd say is either we believe the same things about different things or different things about the same things. Oh, that's very but, elegant. But there's a very there's a very real tension between us that's not not an unsympathetic tension, but it is a tension. So I want to I want to see if it's possible to back this up a little bit and say what I've always felt that Mr. Hoagland's brilliance is was and still is is the ability to um, touch truths that are very, very deep, but he touches them sort of through a glass darkly. So what I've always felt, and this is my opinion, I'm not saying this is the gospel or anything about Richard, is that, um, is that you get a whole lot of, um, of kind of action and phantasmagoria when he, when he presents things. And there's a lot of, there are always a lot of celestial objects, um, there are um, aliens of one sort or another lurking in, in some form, like um, whether they're comets or Martians or so on. And it's always, it's always true at some level, but I don't take it at the same level that you do, Richard. I, I sort of, I don't, I don't um, categorically deny that occasionally and maybe even often some of the insights are true. But my point is that even when they may not be factual, um, you have a knack for picking up a, a kind of mythic level or a level that's too deep to surface. You, you, intuit, um, you intuit a structure and a stream of information which is not evident on the surface, but because you're very much uh, just, uh, it must be in your chart or something. It's just part of your nature that you are fascinated by the surface and especially the astronomical surface and the movement of palpable and concrete things much more. I'm fascinated too. Like you, I was once uh, a science fiction addict and I had a scrapbook on the planet Mars as a child. And so these images pervade my consciousness too. But um, when, I, when I really think about this analytically, and this will be true during the brief time that we're on the show together, I probably 
will um, will just sort of be fascinated by these ideas. The idea that you know, uh, I mean, I I do think that there's amino acid material in comet tails, and that yeah, it's it's an, certainly an interesting image, but it's wherever the reality and source of COVID, it's a, it's a powerful image to think of it as descending from both the solar system and the zodiac. And it's a powerful image to think of it bringing information and, um, and being sort of, I don't know, the, to pick a shared image to be a kind of childhood's end um, dream state in, a, in its own quiet way. And um, I don't, I don't really know anything. I mean, I read the same news you do, and I, uh, I get involved in the same speculations and debate them in, in myself internally. I, I do think intuitively that this is a very strange virus, and it's a very strange event that's issuing from the virus. And some of that, I think, is the event of the virus is contacting the very weird events of the world and culture at this time. And even if you take a strict scientific RNA copying view of the, of the virus, it, it still is entering our system and our consciousness at some level. And it's entering a world that's tremendously entangled and stuck and trapped a world that's traveling, in a sense, in a, ho- in, its, in a hollow of its own meanings. So with, the, with this um, kind of Internet reality, this virtual reality being ground out at, at a rapid pace at, w- with algorithms and artificial intelligences driving realities, the, the hollow space around us, um, the space of our unconscious, of our spiritual meanings, um, that's all hollowing out and having nothing in it because all these um, um, fabricated realities and, um, and kind of um, manufactured abstractions are dominating uh, our space. So then this thing comes in, which is extremely grounding and very real, and it pulls everything toward not just itself, but towards the missing reality. And I think that's true, whatever its source, and whether you can put a mythological or sci-fi view on it or, or not, uh, I think that's just, that's just the nature of where we are. So there's a very much a waking up component to this. And... Um, Having just watched on TV the, on 60 Minutes, the coffins in New York, I don't think anybody would want to cavalierly see it as, uh, as mainly a kind of revelation. But I think on a certain level it is. It's, uh, it's a planet-wide and collective revelation, and its ultimate impact, um, I think, is, is still unknown. So I'm going to stop, you know, sort of, it's like a seesaw. <laughs> you, you pulled your side down very fast and very far. So I think I've got the seesaw a little bit back. And um, so let's get into a dialogue. Let's, let's avoid the monologues now and see if we can't um, talk to each other a bit.
And, well, that's uh, that's what the show is. It's a conversation, and your timing yeah. is perfect, Richard. You know, you you've done this a lot because we're at the bottom of the hour. We're at a break, so let's take a pause and kind of think about. Uh, see, I'm not quite sure whether uh, Richard complimented me or didn't. I, you know, I'll have to take this break to kind of think about that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> anyway, um, let me remind everyone where you are. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. My guest this morning is Richard Grossinger, an old friend, an old foil, and <laughs> someone I love to have these conversations with because as superficial as I am, sometimes I'm curious. We shall return. Oh, come on. <laughs> from the other side of midnight. We investigate, explore, and extrapolate facts to gain better understanding of current affairs and events, and thus... To bring comfort and calm to our wide international audience. It's a spontaneous commentary... Based on well-verified references fed through vigilance and discernment. Our desire... desire is to awaken your imagination... Donation with questions... Questions that have not been asked, yet need answering... The other side of the news is a place where you can come and be with us in community. Learning new things, asking questions, getting compelling answers, and interesting viewpoints. It's about curiosity. We present thought-provoking questions to incite your mind, propelling you to see the world in another way. Propelling you to see the world in another way. Clear insights and fresh perspectives on global events. Tune in for a balanced view of the other side of the news. side of the news can be heard here on this network, on this channel, on this website, on this URL, every Friday evening, two hours, seven to nine p.m. Pacific time. I warn you, you'll miss it at your own peril.
and welcome back, everyone, on this Sunday night, April 19th, 2020. My guest this morning is an old friend and colleague, Richard Grossinger. And, you know, Richard, I'm, I'm going to, you know, be barbing all during the evening because despite what you say, um, Richard was the only publisher who would take a chance on the Monuments of Mars, which was, of course, my attempt to figure out what NASA had really discovered at Sidonia and DiPietro and Molinar had tried to investigate with limited tools and which uh, the NASA establishment had firmly decided was nothing but a trick of light and shadow. And Richard, I think uh, the, that that book is something like in its fifth edition now. Is that correct? Well, I, something like that. Yeah, I, I don't have the count in my head, but we've done it. We did it a number of times and enlarged it. And, and uh, I mean, it, it, it got fatter and fatter. <laughs> it sure did. And at some point, I think you told me, for God's sake, don't keep adding to this one. Write another one. So as a matter of fact, we have, and um, uh, a whole bunch of us have, the, the Enterprise Mission team, which we're going to assemble again to, uh, next Saturday night. Uh, we have such stunning evidence, you know, light years ahead of what you saw decades ago. I mean, there's really... If you look at the artifacts, if you look at the close-ups, if you look at the geometry and the uh, the ruins and all that, I mean, it's 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 no longer just you know a couple of folks. It's it's a it's a worldwide movement of people who see what we see and see the implications that we see, and yet officialdom has done nothing in decades. Now they're beginning to do something and. As part of our discussion uh, later on, we'll we'll get into some of those specifics. This new mystery that they kind of put out under the umbrella of what's going on with this virus is very Washingtonian. It's very plausible deniability. And as uh, Dr. Wickrama Singh said, they have known about the reality of what's on Mars for decades. Again, you know, Chandra is not someone you trifle with. He's probably the world's most eminent astrobiologist. He has discovered you know, all kinds of active viruses and bacteria in in space, and yet the mainstream refuses to acknowledge um, this, this science, this research, because, again, politically, it's simply not time. And maybe it never will be time. Anyway, uh, let's, let's go for Mars for a minute and go back to something I really wanted to ask, which is, You've had a compendium of books over the years delving into very as, various aspects of epistemology, science, uh, literary scholarship, and whatever. What prompted you to write Bottoming Out the Universe, and what the hell does Bottoming Out the Universe mean? Well, I didn't initially write it so much as I used Facebook to engage in discussions with people about um, something that seemed elusive. And I was, I was kind of bouncing off my own. Um, I did a three volume book on reality and consciousness called Dark Pool of Light, which was published, I don't know, maybe six or seven years ago. And, and I was getting a, a lot of Facebook friends who had read either one or more of the volumes. And so I was trying to see where else you would go with, with, the kind of issue of the nature of consciousness. Uh, in that three-volume book, I, I really tried to 
deal with the consciousness of neuroscience and the very different consciousness of psycho-spiritual systems, and then try to kind of bring them together around a bunch of issues. And in the course of, of like bouncing things back and forth and having some people who are physicists and, and other people who um, were more occult in their orientation, the phrase bottoming out the universe came up. And I didn't take it seriously at first. I, I just thought it was a passing phrase that came up in a discussion. Um, and and I, I used it in the sense of feeling that, um, that there's a tendency of scientists, physicists, biologists, um, and philosophers, cosmologists, to imply that it's possible to bottom out the universe in some sort of unified uh, theory. And like the sort of thing that Stephen Hawking uh, um, made famous and popular. And my sense is that we don't begin to comprehend the actual universe. Um, it is operating at so many levels of depth and manifestation and latency that this notion that a bunch of equations are going to account for it or, or that physics is going to uh, like capture all the forces. I think, I think that my own view of the universe is that it's operating in multiple dimensions that are outside of the capacity of our nervous system to track and that that's not an accident because to jump ahead, I kind of intuit, and no matter what words you use, they're just words, and I'm reaching for a reality that's deeper, that this is a reality designed by us. Um, it's not unreal. In fact, it's, it's, it's quite real in its way, but it's not real in another sense. Uh, the sense in which it's not real is it's one of many realities, many possible realities, and many probabilities of its own reality state. And that the physical, the, the way in which it's come into physical manifestation is simply a property of a kind of collective consciousness or collective thought form that we're, we're generating. And this partly comes from my own um, later restudy of the Seth, the Seth um, channelings, to call them that. Actually, by the way, just parenthetically, and I think this is almost too much of a diversion to get into deeply, but there's um, a very interesting priest in Italy, American priest, who has studied and compared the resurrection of Christ and the reincarnation of Tibetan lamas. And he uses the word instead of channeling locutions. And I like that a whole lot more. Mm. So I would say the Seth locutions, and I've been studying for about 10 years with John Friedlander and, and his um, colleague, Gloria Hempshire. And they, they have developed whether that, whether John is channeling Seth, which would be kind of blasphemy to say to the Seth people, he is channeling a similar intelligence. And that, that is, that contains in it an interesting model of the universe in which not only, and by universe, I mean, not, not, uh, astronomical universe, but all that is, whatever that mm. encompasses. And that, and that what we're experiencing is not just a thought, our own thought form, but it's a collective thought form created by all the participating intelligences, certainly human, but 
probably also animal and plant, and maybe rock and crystal. And that's why it's so... Um, well, well, it's well, well, so, what about extraterrestrials? Okay. Well, sure. I, I, mean, I, I mean, every not only extraterrestrials, but extra-dimensionals. Yeah, but and that then, means you have a communications link between dimensions, and that seems to be very variable. You know, if you're all in the same dimension, yeah, you can probably communicate. But can you really communicate transdimensional? Reliably? I I don't think you can communicate reliably consciously, nor are we intended to. But I think in terms of the actual, the nature of our existence, the kind of of existential um, reality that we take for granted, that we don't question, um, our own beingness, that at a unconscious level, and is even deeper, more unconscious than the Freudian unconscious, that we are simultaneously um, kind of broadcasting or um, um, kind of expelling this, this reality, this thought form. And so in that sense, we are participating with extra dimensionals and, or whatever you want to call um, forms of consciousness and vibrations that are outside our range. And they don't, they don't come to us as information or as stories, which is probably where you and I maybe don't differ in belief, but differ in what interests us. Um, and, and I think that, that our whole um, reality, the basis of our thoughts it is shared across dimensions, but we're just not conscious of that and that we don't know actually what portion of our reality is being generated be outside our nervous system and by, by, uh, I mean, dimensions is just a word, uh, being generated by other aspects of all that is, other intelligent aspects, other sentient aspects, and that we're really participating during these lives in an extremely vast um, consciousness that we're unaware of, because if we're aware of it, we wouldn't live. We, we would have no interest in these lives. And as it is, we've somehow designed a reality that's compelling, urgent, poignant, beautiful, sad, really powerful, um, deeply powerful, deeply meaningful. We've, we've um, collectively participated in generating it. And it's, and to many, many people, it's, they're certain it's the only reality. In fact, that's that's the that's the uh, the slogan and the mantra of um, of materialistic science. And part of my argument in the book is to talk about, without trying to make an ultimate claim about anything. I'm trying to show the dilemmas that materialistic science has gotten us into. Um, certainly ecologically and spiritually which becomes another form of ecologically at this at in at this level and um and i think um ontologically too or what you're maybe i'd say epistemologically to use your word Mm -hmm. flip it around but i think that it's it's a a kind of devastating reality to people it's the, the materialistic reality and it certainly underlies the reliance on the algorithm um, Do you remember which, the old Einstein quote, <clears throat> which I think we have science today, academia, whatever you want to call it, 
has totally forgotten in their mad pursuit of money grants. <laughs> Remember that what? line? In fact, I, I, I was so you to, you just quote it. Go I, ahead. I, I'm going to. I was so enamored with this that when I was uh, asked to join the Hayden Planetarium in New York, I actually had it printed up and I sent it out as invitation cards to one of the events that I was in charge of uh, producing. It, he said, and I forget when, all true science begins in wonder. And what's yeah, missing... Yeah, depart from that, it's... Wait, 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 wait. What's missing in science today, when I look around, is any sense of wonder. Yeah, in fact, um, in fact, if you came into many scientific uh, gatherings and brought a sense of wonder in you would be expelled or ridiculed um, or marginalized in some way. And when you really think about it, it's shocking because what's the upside? What's the game? Um, we certainly, I mean, yes, we produced a kind of amazing technology, but we have not produced um, a situation which is even even marginally habitable as it goes forward. Well, because uh, pardon, part of the reason is we haven't gone far enough. You know, it's very hard to create a self-actualizing, sustainable civilization when there are invisible ceilings limiting your technology to something as primitive as burning a hydrocarbon. I mean, we now know, and I'm pursuing some of these technologies quietly with some colleagues, you know, far outside this sphere. We now know we can tap into whatever, you know, zero point energy field or torsion field you want, and you can create limitless, environmentally totally compatible energy. Why are we not allowed to have this? The standard cliche is money, the oil companies. You know, big car companies, all these trillions of dollars invested in, you know, existing technology have to be amortized and they'll never be amortized. So we're stuck on this this uh, almost crucifix of uh, of environmental catastrophe. The real answer, Richard, is, I believe, if those technologies were allowed to be introduced in, into the consciousness of this planet, and I use the term consciousness very advisedly, that would reveal immediately that consciousness is part of the package. It would be such a freedom for humans, no longer chattel, no longer slaves to a system that keeps them poor, keeps them in, in slavery to a system that demands that they you know, pay the piper. It would require you know, for all those control mechanisms to basically fade away, and it would totally transform what it's like to live in a 3D universe with access to higher dimensions. And that is the dirty secret they never want us to know. So we go from year to year, century to century, stumbling along, endangering the planet because they dare not let us breathe and think free. Well, this is where you and I strongly agree at the same time we strongly disagree. I got to see how um, you square this circle. Go ahead. What, what I... Uh, because I, I can maintain contradictory ideas at the same time. I, like you, am very interested in what kinds of um, ecological technologies could be developed. And I am as fascinated by you 
in in the potential that's that's locked in systems we already begin to understand and i like you share the outrage at the rather banal limits that are imposed by a, a corporate political structure um, at the same time i think it's very very dangerous ultimately and personally to rely on technology and on development of technology to be the the kind of leading edge of where we go i i would locate it more in the in the realm of the general realm of of shamanism um psychic meditation um and these are i i know that you could yeah, just but say but well, richard, richard, not richard, richard 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 hang on hang on shamanism and psychic whatever don't put food on the table there are seven billion mouths on this planet tonight, right. give or well, take. Well, that's why we agree and disagree. I don't. I, there's nothing you're saying I disagree with. It's more. It's more a matter of how you do both at the same time and where you put your emphasis. And I am saying that yes, the, this is a solution. To what you're saying and heralding is a solution to many important um, ground level issues, but. I don't think that it is the breakthrough to human meaning or the evolution of what, you know, a few decades ago was thought of as the Aquarian consciousness and the introduction of a new, a new um, framework of humanity. I think that that framework will come more like through the dreams you're talking about. Um, it'll come through human awakening to the participation of other consciousnesses and to the um, the kind of eternal nature of existence that um, that the dead don't just disappear that the ancestors continue to participate now I don't nothing that you're saying do I want to disagree with it's more a matter of emphasis I think anytime you decide that technology is going to be your savior. You're going to be trapped in, there's no way to neutrally pursue technology, first of all, without corruption. I, I don't think you can drive the unconscious elements or the greed or the underlying role of money and power, no matter what you, the, the more complicated and, and, um, kind of useful um, uh, technology you develop, the more it's going to be corrupted by these forces. So it's not going to work. It's it's a more benign. It's, a, hmm. it's well, you and I both know. You today. almost sound like Doctor Morbius in Forbidden Planet. Remember, <laughs> monsters you know, from the id. Well, no, I wouldn't say monsters from the id, but. You know, you share something with, uh, in a way, I was thinking with our in a, with our mutual friend, my aunt Suzanne Taylor, oh, yeah, who Suzanne. Um, who who always says, I just don't see why we can't just get together and do this, you know, and it's so it's so maddening, and and I I agree, it is maddening, but I also think that that there's a kind of idealist. I don't know, is it an idealization or just um, just a kind of projection onto the situation? I think that the situation that exists now represents exactly who we are. It's exactly where we should be. 
It's the only place we could be. Hmm. And how depressing. No, I don't no? think it's depressing at all. I think that it's depressing to think that there are all these wonderful things that we won't, that we're not developing because of, uh, you know, uh, the, the, these political and economic blocks, because I don't think they're going away. Um, well, I think see, that's where you and I change. also differ, because I have a feeling, <clears throat> and again, this is just kind of like an intuition. I can't back it up with data yet. I love data, but I can't support this yet, except as a speculation <clears throat> that one of the positive benefits of this virus planetary crisis that the whole world, all 100, uh, 195 nations, I find that number fascinating. Again, 195 separate nations on the planet as you know, judged by the U.S. State Department. Um, they're all grappling now with alternatives that until they have this crisis, they could kind of ignore, including economic inequality. I mean, everything starts with we are living in a 3D reality where if you don't pay attention to the housekeeping, you will not survive in the 3D reality. Consciousness is wonderful, provided you can stay alive to kind of explore it. Right. Well, I don't disagree with that. I think that I think that you have to run both both at the same time. Yes, parallel programs. So, uh, last night I put up a, uh, a news item. There are people taking pictures all over the world of formerly incredibly horribly polluted cities like in India, like in mm -hmm. uh, China, like in Japan. And they've, they've never seen in their whole lives blue sky. They've never seen the mountains on the horizon of the city in which they live. And they're seeing all of this. And I'm really hoping that when we get back to, quote, normal, there will be a political constituency that says, wait a minute. Why can't we have that every day? And I'm not talking about windmills and solar cells and all that, but the real breakthrough, stunning environmentally benign technologies, which could provide more than enough energy and sustenance for 7 billion people and walk lightly on the earth, almost in terms of non-existent footprints. And we know the technologies exist in the black world and the this is all, secret yeah, world, this is all, but I, they need I to be forced that. into the open. And this could be the catalyst to for people to demand that they be marketed and available at Kmart. Yeah, but I think that we'll move by baby steps because that's how we always move. So I do think until you think have a planetary crisis unprecedented in modern history. Right. So it'll be a big baby step, but it'll still it'll still have to be many steps. We won't just suddenly. Jump into a light. Not so sure. All right. All right. Let me let, let me give another example, and we got about five minutes to the top of the hour, so let me do it in two. The biggest problem now to reopening the economy, everybody all over the world agrees, is is testing. Right. Mm. Now, testing involves that you either sample a person's saliva, or their mucous membranes, or take a blood sample, and then you put it through a series of chemistries, and then you wind up with an analysis. You know, do they have the virus? Did they have the virus? Do they have antibodies? That kind of thing. It's all physical chemistry, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. What if there was an existing totally alternative technology which literally could capture the essence of a human being through a voice print 
a computerized voice print that could literally read out every disease you have, the physical condition of your organs, and by inverting that spectral uh, print could literally correct the defects in every human being simply by putting on a set of headphones. Great. Uh, I'm for that. That exists. Are you going to patent it, Richard? That exists. No, it's a a gal invented it. One of your guests uh, is one of your guests. I'm going to. They already have. It's been on the market for 50 years. And in fact, that was the reason I was on WABC this morning talking to my friend John on the Salem Radio Network because there's an awful lot of politicians that listen to John in Washington, in New York, the governor of New York, the president of the United States. They're very good friends. And I put that out there this morning as the idea that if we're desperate for testing and we want to get the economy going again, which everybody does, what about thinking outside the box? How about looking oh, at oh, a, yeah. I mean, at a the modality? Box is, the box is really full of junk. So well, yeah, it is. But d- did you know that there's an actual center under the National Institutes of Health that is supposed to be dealing with energy medicine as mainstream? Yeah, I did because I remember when uh, John Upledger was um, one of the kind of um, people – on the board of that or okay. whatever his role was. In, in, in the old cliche, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. We are desperate for this now. This is, I mean, you cannot physically create enough tests for 350 million people. You can give them all with the right technology, an app, which can analyze them, separate those with the virus for those that have the antibodies. You, you, you test people literally with the, well, when we pick up and discuss this, then we should discuss what are the political and economic blocks. If the technology exists, mm. let's let's kind of say, let's look at it and say, okay, really, why? In whose interest is it um, to prevent this uh, technology from being um, from being made available and uh, or even looked at? I have I two words. It two words and we're coming up to a break so i'll leave you with these two words big pharma my guest this morning is dr richard grossinger and we're having one of our conversations except this time you get to listen in thanks for listening to this exciting first hour now the second and third hour of the show is available to club 19.5 members only Please support the show by subscribing to club 19.5 and join our very interesting community to do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. 
I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. <laughs>